The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, in many ways we were just singing a prayer. We were asking you to work in ways that would honor you and would build up this, your people, would build up your body here. So I want to speak along those same lines and ask you to take this passage, to take your word and illumine it, to make it clear. And towards that end, Father, I ask you to send and to to authorize, to order your spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, to move through the room here and to own it. Being God, of course, he is present always, but I ask you to, to give him particular authority over the hearts of men and women and, and teenagers and young children here, over the hearts of preachers and listeners alike so that you would have your way in this room that your word would be spoken and heard internalized believed rested in and rejoiced in we are simply flesh we are like flowers quickly fading and we have no power We speak a language, but it isn't the language that actually effects change. We can hear the words and understand them, but you must make them powerful, and I ask you to do that. That you would speak what is here into the hearts of the individuals in this room and elsewhere, and that you would accomplish change so that we each, wherever we start, we would be grown. We would know something of you, something more of you, something deeper of you. We would be changed by that so that you would be honored and we would be blessed. Please do that. So, Spirit of God, that's my request of you. And would you, in doing that, would you lift up Jesus the Son? Father, would you tell the Spirit to honor the Son? be sweet if you would do that so we ask you for it make the word clear here help us to listen to it think it through press it into us and make us new with it that the sun would be lifted up and honored and that we the people of God would be grown draw others in build your church honor the name of Jesus it's in his name we pray amen Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 20, where we find Jesus teaching again, telling another well-known parable. Of course, he's taught much before, but now here in Jerusalem at the end, it's in the last week of his life here, his earthly life, 
He's got a different context, and therefore there's a different edge to what he's saying. We saw in the previous chapter that the crowds, by and large, had welcomed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem with enthusiasm and joy, a reception that led unexpectedly to Jesus weeping, weeping in sorrow because they didn't really understand him, and he knows it. They, they, ha- they have an idea, but they don't understand clearly what he's about, not, not who he is, not what, what he means by peace, what kind of a king he is, what's, what's happening here. They don't get it, and he knows, therefore, then, that they're shortly going to reject him and will remain under the judgment of God. The masses, all of the people, will turn against him very soon. They will be calling crucify him in just a couple of days. For the moment, at this point, they are still with him, still for him, so they think. It's only the leaders who are dead set against him. He cleansed the temple, assuming the right to do so and the right to teach there, which all supplants them, replaces them, moves them out of first place. And so they are hardened in their opposition, and they seek a way to destroy him, like what we saw last week. They attempt to set a trap for him in a discussion about his authority. They ask him a question, and Jesus avoids the trap while managing still to get his point across. He has absolute authority over all things, everywhere, always. Many alls you can put on that. Jesus communicates that while avoiding the trap. Clearly says he has authority, and they must, we must surrender to that. And there's actually great blessing in submitting to the authority of Jesus. We get him as Lord. We get this Jesus as our Lord. But people commonly resist him nonetheless, and and he's clearly, in saying this, he's clearly confronting the authorities who are after him, but he's also speaking a word of warning to the people, to to all who commonly resist him. So it's a two-pronged message aimed at those who openly reject Jesus, the leaders, and also at those who in a couple of days will find out that they actually within them, they actually reject Jesus. They're going to join the leaders. And and Jesus may be, as we've seen, angry at one group and sorrowful towards another, but they're both in the same place. They both remain under the wrath of God and are headed towards judgment. And that brings us to our parable for today. As Jesus goes, you might say, goes on the offensive to talk about rejection and consequence. Up to this point, he, he's been receiving attack. I mean, he's, he was responding to a question raised, a, a trap laid for him last week, but now he initiates this conversation and brings up something with the people to bring out something important about rejection and consequence, but about ultimately who he is and what, what he will be. So I'm going to read this parable. This is in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. I'm going to read it and then pass back through it because some of the details need to be understood and clarified. But then I'll move on to make two observations from it for us. So here's Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants 
so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Luke chapter 20. So first let's think through what the parable is about. He begins by telling this to all the people, which is important to note because it tells us who the they, who responds in disbelief and dismay at the end of verse 16, tells us who the they is and tells us who the them is in verse 17, the one that Jesus looks at, looks at directly, or we might say looks at significantly, attentively, about to deliver a telling comment. He is speaking to and with the crowds. Now, the parable does have particular force for the leaders, leaders of the people. Verse 19 tells us, as we'll see next time, that that they got that this was against them. And it is particularly against them, but not only and not even primarily. Though many Christians do think of this as about the leaders, we will see throughout why it isn't. And here at the beginning, let me point out, he's talking to the crowd. This is for everybody. He's interacting with the people. They are shocked and dismayed for what he says about them. He tells them a parable about a man and a vineyard. An image very clearly drawn from Isaiah chapter 5, where, if you look through Isaiah, you see that God is speaking through the prophet to the people of Israel, ancient Israel, and he describes himself as having a vineyard. And if you read through that section there, verse 7 of Isaiah 5 clearly explains that the vineyard is the people of Israel in Isaiah. And so Jesus, obviously making a connection, when they heard that, they'd get it, and he wants to carry that context forward. And the context there is one of scathing judgment. from God against the people because despite all of his gracious blessing, the vineyard has been unfruitful and so God is about to destroy it. Judgment is going to wipe out ancient Israel. So we have the basic sense of where this is going as soon as Jesus speaks the first sentence of the parable. A man had a vineyard. Uh Uh-oh. I know where this is going, and and the soundtrack turns foreboding. We, We understand the general context here, but 
the parable takes a twist, which is a clue to us that we need to think a little bit differently as we try to connect it and apply it. There is, of course, still a man called the owner of the vineyard in verses 13 and 15. Literally, it's the Lord of the vineyard. Obviously, this is God, and there is a vineyard, but now also there are tenants, a third party introduced here. People who are allowed to live there and work in the vineyard. And whereas in Isaiah, the vineyard is the problem, here as Jesus tells this parable, the, the vineyard, the problematic vineyard, has been replaced by the problematic tenants. The vineyard itself is perfectly fine. The reason that God doesn't get fruit from it is not the vineyard's problem, it's the tenant's fault. They won't produce the fruit, though he sends for it and calls for it repeatedly. He sends various servants to speak to the tenants, one after another. These messengers, these servants from God, come and deliver his message, give me my fruit. And they won't. One after another, these messengers, these prophets, are rejected and beaten and cast out as the tenants stiff-arm the owner until finally he sends his son, who as the son would have been the perfect stand-in for the father. He, he comes with a unique authority. The servants, they just work for him, but the son is the, is the face of the owner to the people. One with unique authority, who should be uniquely respected. It's as if the master himself came, and the tenants see it, though, not as someone to be submitted to, but someone to be killed. And therefore, finally, the way we can get rid of this yoke and have the vineyard all to ourselves. That's their thinking. And so they kill the son. What do you think the Lord of the vineyard will do to these tenants? He will come and destroy them, says Jesus. All the people, all of them who heard the prophets again and again and again, all of them who plotted to kill the son, who heard God's word, the call of the owner and rejected it, this is just like what he said in the previous chapter when weeping, we've got to have the right attitude when we talk about destruction, we've got to say it through tears. When weeping, he says, the city is going to be raised to the ground and all of the people in it, from high to low, cut down because they reject the Son, me. It's the same message. Different language, the same message. The city, here, the tenants, all who reject him will be destroyed and he will give the vineyard to others. Or as Matthew's account puts it, he will give the kingdom to others. That's a little change here. The tenants are the people now and the vineyard is the place where the tenants live and from which they should produce the fruit. The tenant is the kingdom and its blessings and promises. And Jesus says, with the tenants, with the people cut down, God will give the kingdom to others. May it never be, is the response. Surely not. There's double shock and double dismay at that because he's not just talking about the destruction of them, but he's talking about and others. Who's that? Well, think about 
the connection between this and so much of what Jesus has already said. Think back to chapter 13, the parable of the narrow door. Jesus is the narrow door through which one must enter to get into the kingdom. And at the kingdom feast is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others. People from north and south and east and west from the nations, the Gentiles. May it never be. And outside, weeping and gnashing, ethnic Israel. The Gentiles come into the kingdom. May it never be. And Jesus zeroed in on them and quoted from Psalm 118. The same psalm they had quoted from when they welcomed him in joyfully into the city. Which leads us to our first observation. Rejection of Jesus is common and it is very costly because it is the rejection of God. Rejection of Jesus is common and it is very costly because it is the rejection of God. The whole parable is built around the concept of rejection. It is a great big story of no, get out of here, we aren't listening to you. The tenant farmers will not listen to the messengers because they do not want to listen to the God who sent them. And Jesus tells this parable, and, and that section of the parable at the messengers, really, that's about what's already happened. That's about past centuries. The prophets, one after another, for a long, 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 long time prior to this. He's talking about the past. And oddly, as he tells it, it's as if the owner is so patient that he actually is willing to let all that slide. Now, in in the past, he didn't let it slide. That's what Isaiah is about. He didn't let it slide. He did bring judgment. But Jesus tells it here. The, the owner does not respond yet after the messengers, one after another, after another, are rejected. And he is rejected in their rejection. He's patient, patient, patient. And Jesus tells it like this to highlight the importance, the, the uniqueness, the, the special position that the son holds. And to highlight the attitude of the people towards God, one of basic resistance that crystallizes, surfaces and crystallizes, and, and remarkably does so in response to the beloved son, the coming king. They say, they see, and they say, here now is the son, the heir, the one who uniquely carries the authority of the father, and they do not respond to him in submission but they see it as their great chance to complete the rebellion. With double audacity and rebellion, they reject him and they kill him. They realize who he is, and that's why they reject him. And this perfectly fits with it. It's right in with what's going on with Jesus and what is about to go on with Jesus. Segments of the people, especially but not only the leaders, have already decided to reject him. 
And that's predictive of what's coming soon. They will reject Jesus as Lord over them because they reject God in heart. They see that he is the son. They, they heard even, this is my beloved son, the voice from heaven. They have seen the signs in him all the way through his life, and they do not want that, just as was predicted. Often, recently, and even long ago. Jesus spoke of this before, back in chapter 18, saying that this rejection and killing of the Messiah was written about in the prophets, and we looked at Isaiah 53 back then. It's a well-known chapter talking about the despised and rejected son. Could discuss other places, but here Jesus puts his finger on Psalm 118, which is important in this context because the people already quoted it themselves, making clear they realize this is, a, this is messianic, this is about the Messiah. When Jesus rode into town, that's the psalm they went to and said, blessed is he who, and they actually change it to make double clear, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw Jesus very carefully saying, I'm going to go grab a donkey. I'm going to connect myself to the old prophecies of the king coming right into so that you see, so that you understand very clearly who I am. And they get it. Blessed is the king who comes. They see this is the one and reject him. Because they don't want him. Jesus turns their expectations by going to that same psalm, quoting from another place in it, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In this case, the, the vine dressers, the builders, will reject a stone. Now, he's using imagery here of ancient construction. When you, when you would build an old house back then, you, you'd look for some ideally gigantic stone, big, thick, level, and put it at the start of the foundation. And the rest of the foundation stones would be laid to connect to it, and then on that gigantic cornerstone would be two walls from which you'd build the rest of the house. A corner would rest on that stone because it's not moving, it's not going anywhere, so the house gains then stability. So builders would begin by looking for a stone to set at the corner, a cornerstone. And they would check big ones, thick ones, flat ones, ones that are going to be right. And they'd check, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, that's one. Ah, there, this one works. And they'd set it in and start. And Jesus says, Psalm 118 is about me and you. And you looking at me as the cornerstone and saying, nope. Not that one. I'm going to build my house on something else. Get rid of him. That's what they are saying. He will be thrown out, not rejected by outsiders and foreigners, but by insiders, by the ones building the house themselves. It's predicted, and it will happen with terrible consequences. for ethnic Israel. That's an important point that we should be aware of. And we've got to talk about this somewhere here in Luke, somewhere particularly here at the end of Luke, because this is a note that's 
kind of behind a number of scenes, and it's important for us to kind of understand a little bit so we can catch the big picture. I alluded to it before when we talked about Jesus mentioning the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. There, there is something Jesus is touching on here and in other places about ethnic Israel and God's judgment of it. This removing you, giving the kingdom to Gentiles. There's something about the big picture salvation history. He's laying out in this parable something that traces over thousands of years. Rejection, rejection, rejection of the prophets. Denied, denied, resisted God's word. So what happens? The time now, Jesus is saying, the time of ancient ethnic Israel is over. And the kingdom of God is being given to the Gentiles. May it never be. And if we were to explore this further, several chapters in Romans would become very important to us, particularly Romans chapter 11. Other places, but particularly Romans 11. Because it's as if there in that place, the Apostle Paul picks up this feeling and picks up this argument, picks up the may it never be, and asks, is that going to be forever? This transfer, is, is that forever? Is the time of, is ethnic Israel forever over? And Paul's answer, God's answer in Romans, and especially in chapter 11, is that the time of that old covenant is, in fact, over forever. There is never going to be a return to it. The kingdom of God, the people of God, God's kingdom is never going to look like that. It's never going to be ethnically determined, ethnically Jewish-centered, not all-nation-oriented. That's not ever coming back. It is gone for good. But there is a time coming when that Surely not. Will rise up and will become actually, a, in a good way, in a positive way, a, a, a note of, of jealous desire and ethnically Jewish people will say, I want that back. That was mine. I want it back. And will be roused and will be moved, turned in great number turned back, repentant, believing Jesus' gospel message and will become good tenants of the vineyard themselves again. And when that happens, as Paul puts it, so to speak, they will fit very well because it used to be theirs. They used to live there. They know the lay of the land. But there will be a, a kingdom that is not going to change back. It's going to be a kingdom in which they join back in and there will be Jewish and Gentile tenants together working the Lord's vineyard all under the authority of Messiah Jesus together one day. Not yet, but one day. And it's important that we consider that because it's, it's an... It's a theme in the Bible, it's, and it's, it's here kind of behind a number of things going on in the Gospel of Luke. So we need to think about that and understand it. It matters for the big picture of God's redemptive work. 
But it's also possible, maybe likely, that for a number of us, I start to glaze over because you're talking about big picture, you're talking about ethnic Israel, you're talking about covenants and thousands of years, and I'm not that. That doesn't really matter. Well, it matters in the big picture. But you're right. Most of us here are not ethnically Jewish. Some of us are. Most of us aren't. And so we are reading a little bit about something that's happening to some other people, and, and while we may be tempted to say, shame on them, that's too bad for them, hold on there, because while he's talking about something that is national and something that is ethnic, something that is big picture, he also is talking not just national, not just ethnic, but something very personal. It's about individual people, too. The topic of rejection and consequence is for all people to hear and to consider. And you can see this in how Jesus expands the account. Verse 18, he takes the idea of the stone and expands it to speak to everyone everywhere. Not just members of ancient ethnic Israel. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So, this is not meant to be pushed too far, but if you want to think about it just a little bit, the one who's just kind of walking around, seemingly minding his or her own business, and trips over it and falls, or the one who's trying to stand up defiantly under it, same result in the end. Crushed, shattered. There is no hope in avoiding, opposing, trying to get by without rejecting this stone, this sun. There is great consequence. We need to consider what does rejection look like? Well, of course, one thing it looks like, maybe you can see it in the person standing under the stone that falls, kind of. Sometimes it looks like outright, conscious, no, I don't want anything to do with that. You mention Jesus, you start talking about God, you, you allude to the Bible when people are resistant and angry. Want nothing to do with that, that wrong, narrow-minded, prejudiced thinking that Jesus and his exclusive claims. That's not right, it's not good, it's wrong, I don't like it. And, and they resist outrightly and openly. That's what the leaders are doing here. And that's, that's in the world, for sure. People who oppose him, don't want anything to do with him, and who are aware of that, and consciously reject. But, I think, more often, rejection of Jesus is not quite that blatant. Especially in America. We're probably more like the crowds here who at this point think they are with Jesus. They think they agree. They, they have some idea, they, they, they think they understand him, they think they embrace him. That's partly what's behind their surprise at his conclusion. 
They think Messiah is theirs. They think the kingdom of God is theirs. They do not think that they are stiff-arming God and resisting him. They think Isaiah chapter 5 is about bad people, not them. So maybe they're a little more like the people who are kind of walking along, minding their own business, not openly rejecting. They feel secure. They feel okay. And I think this is where most of the world lives today. If you mention God, if you talk about Jesus, many people in America, especially many people in churches this morning in America, let alone in this valley, in this city, talk about God, talk about Jesus, talk about the need to live according to morality and, and to ethically treat people well and Talk about the importance of forgiveness and sing some praises to, to God and, and talk about prayer and then actually pray. And many, many, many people are completely down with that. Good, let's, sure. I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about God. I, I appreciate prayer. Yes, many people in America, many people in churches, think they agree there is no rejection there there is no i don't like that i don't want that shut up don't talk about that no don't talk about the bible to me it's not there so what's the problem well what is the problem the problem with people listening to jesus is he tells this parable they are fully accepting of an imaginary jesus a jesus of their own creation who speaks a word they agree with come from a God that they've created. Of course Jesus knows this, and that's the point. He knows that when the real Christ appears to them, and God's actual word comes home, and the character of the God who is appears, they will reject that day after tomorrow. He knows that even while they are riding, while he's riding into the city and their lips are praising them, that their hearts remain far from him, who he really is. They, they think they can be in good standing with God, and they think that they are in good standing with God. And they will continue to think that they can be in good standing with God and reject this Jesus, this beloved son. And this is the note of warning to us. The Jesus who is, is the Jesus of the Bible. There isn't any other one. And the word of God that comes to us through Jesus is this word that is the Bible. There isn't any other word. And there isn't any other way to approach the Father but through this Son. This Son who teaches this word. It is completely exclusive and completely clear. Is this Jesus 
the one that you have in mind when you talk about him. Many people in this country, people in churches, maybe people in this church, please consider this if it's you. The Jesus of the Bible is the only one there is, and he's the only way to the Father. And what is common among all people, men and women and children alike, is to set aside this Jesus and to follow a Jesus that we create and to think that we will receive the kingdom and can find all of its blessings along that path, rejecting the one who is. Sometimes rejecting this Jesus and sometimes just walking along fine without him, not even considering rejection. The consequence of missing him as he is, those consequences are catastrophic, expressed here as crushing, shattering to pieces. Of course, what Jesus means, as he says elsewhere, is cast into the torment of hell forever. A most sobering, most dreadful reality. and reality. And he also says that the road that leads there is wide and many walk it. Some with fists raised to God and some just traipsing along to one degree or another unaware. Either way, the stone will cause you to be broken. So stop and consider. Now, obviously, most of this point, most of this message that Jesus is giving is speaking to people who do not believe. We have to face that. And I have to encourage you, if you do not believe, turn and stop and consider, do you actually believe? But as is always the case, even, even we, most of us here, I, I know most of you are Christians, and most of us here, we, you look at this and you say, I see the severity of that, I see the importance of that, and I, I also do recognize that he is talking about somebody else. Okay. But, but, still for us too, there's a point here. What do they think? They think, I can set aside the sun and enjoy the benefits of the vineyard. That's wrong. Is that in your mind? Christian. I can enjoy the benefits of the vineyard. I can enjoy the shalom peace that we've talked about so often. I, I can enjoy the rest. I can enjoy the protection. I can enjoy the provision apart from. Is that, in, is that in your mind? You can't. We can take out the word condemnation because there is no condemnation on those who are in Christ. And in its place, we can put in appropriately so, necessarily so, the word discipline. 
to set aside, to, to say, I will set aside Jesus and pursue the kingdom blessings that I so desperately want, invites Jesus to say, no, no you won't. And to bring in, in place, discipline. Now, there is no condemnation in that, but there may well be pain. So, Christian, this true, blessedly true, most of this first point isn't about you. But do you see the principle in it still? It speaks to you that I cannot set him aside. I do not want to follow those who reject him in my own rejection. I want to embrace him. I want to walk with him. Turn to him. And towards that, to help with that, we consider the second point. Rejection is common. Rejection is, is common in the world. It brings tragic consequences. But that verdict was overruled. Here's the second observation. Jesus has been and will be exalted all according to God's plan. Jesus has been and will be exalted all according to God's plan. The parable ends, as Jesus tells it, with the owner of the vineyard coming in wrath to settle accounts with the resistant, murderous tenants. He destroys them and gives the vineyard away. But the beloved son remains dead. Can't overcome that in the parable. But the quote from the psalm that Jesus gives alerts us to something else. The negative verdict, the verdict of rejection, it will be overturned. The rejected stone has become the cornerstone. Next verse in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Run all that together. I know a lot of folks, and I've done this myself, who take the last part of that. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it and kind of put it over every day, and what it kind of becomes is, I'm going to look at this positively, and I'm going to consider God's goodness in it, and that is a good thing, and it's not quite the point. This day that the Lord has made, this day that is his doing, in which we are glad, is the day that he says, oh, no, you don't and puts him back at the corner of the house. Overturns the verdict. He has given the Messiah, rejected and killed, the privilege and the honor of being the stone upon which the whole house of God is built. As we think about that, and maybe see it in this Psalm 118, or, or see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, we realize that was foretold 
a long time before it happened. This was according to a plan. God planned this all along. He planned it. The rejection of Christ was not a failure. It seems like it, and in the parable, it does seem, as Jesus tells the parable, that the owner is kind of debating, I wonder if this will work or not. Oh, man, it didn't. Now I'm angry. And he's thwarted in his desire to have the son effectively bringing in the fruit. No, 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 that's not how it actually happens. God knows what's going on. God planned it all. God foretold it all, and God has overturned it all. Is it evil? Is, is it wicked? Absolutely. But is, is it all under the hand of God, meant for good? Absolutely. It's meant for evil by those who killed him, and meant for good by God who reigns. This is how, in fact... This plan is how, in fact, there is a cross. The son was willing. It was planned. He, he willingly, knowingly embraced it to come and be rejected and killed in our place, cast out and killed by people according to the plan of God. So then the Lord would bring him back and bring him back to life. Say, you set him aside and I put him back. I have made up my mind. I have enthroned my king forever on Zion. This one is the Lord. Despite your views, despite your desires, I will set him up and on top of him I will set my house. And he will be exalted. Look. And he brings him out of the grave. And he raises him up into heaven where he ascends and takes his seat at the throne and begins to reign. Exalted in the highest place, Jesus is Lord over all. This is the doing of God. A good day, and we are glad in it. Why? Because finally, the great plan is accomplished. And in the Son, God gathers in his fruit. It has always been God's goal with regard to the kingdom, with regard to the creation, in fact, that there be a people in whom he would reap a harvest of fruit for himself. What does that mean? Well, leave behind the metaphor. What it means, it's about God receiving the praise and the glory. God receiving praise and glory for himself. That was the whole reason he created in the first place. The reason he made anything, and in particular made people in his image, to see him, to embrace him, not reject him, to embrace him and rest in and trust in and admire and enjoy that which is awesome, beautiful, good, strong, wise, gracious, merciful, And as 
the creation and as the creatures, particularly the humans made in his image, as we see and embrace and trust and rest in and in our hearts say, oh, wonderful. In our minds think, brilliant. And with our mouths say, awesome. All of that is a declaration of you are good. You are great. And that is praise. That is glorifying. And that's why God made. That is the fruit from us returned to him that is appropriate and right, that is his goal and is our good. Because think about that. If you're sitting there in your heart saying, oh, and your mind saying, brilliant, and with your mouth saying, awesome, you are delighted. Nothing about that is grudging and dang it, I have to. Not a bit. It's all, yes, wonderful, awesome, which is what you want. It's the life of the kingdom. But you can't get it apart from this Jesus. Because what we are in birth is rebels. It is the idolatry. It is the evil folly of the human heart to say no to God and no to God's messengers. I will get it myself. And he says, good luck, you can't. But here's the grace of the gospel. God willed to crush his son. God willed, God decided to crush his son in place of you. So that crushing him, you might not be crushed. And instead, what he would do to you is he would move into your heart, put his spirit in you and bring you to life and cause you to see and to rest in and to enjoy. In other words, he would bear fruit in your life, harvest it to himself for your own good. You would live finally for real and he would gain the glory that was rightfully his and always his goal. This is what he's about, what he has accomplished in his son. It is the doing of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes and that day we rejoice and are glad. It's already happened and it one day will happen. Christ will come again and will be exalted over everyone and every knee will bow and he will have peace in the garden finally and fully forever. That's what is and what is coming. That's the day finally where we rejoice and are glad. So the sweet thing here is that the rejection of people is ultimately overruled by a God who says, no, I will set him up, and no, I will accomplish my purposes. I will bear fruit in the lives of humans. And that's happened and is happening, but it barely seems so to us now. We see a whole lot more of the rejection in the world, in people, 
even in my own heart, if I'm honest, a whole lot more of the wandering away from him and a whole lot more of the seeking the kingdom apart from him in me, let alone out there. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's the case. How he appears most commonly now is as the man of sorrows and crucified. So what do we do with that? Well, in part, let me say two things, and I better say them quickly. <laughs> okay, two things quickly. We have to fight living by sight. And you fight living by sight to live by faith. How? By the Spirit and the Scriptures. So what we have to do is say, Lord, it does not seem this way. It does not seem this way. What it seems like is that you're rejected and you're lost. That's what it seems like. So, that's what I see Will you help me to see something different. And that kind of speech towards God, will you help me to see something different, is an acknowledgement. You must change my heart. You must bear the fruit of faith. You must bear the fruit of sight in me, please. Now, how did that happen? By the scriptures in the hand of the Spirit. So the struggle we have now is, we Christians have now, is that we read has become the cornerstone. And we don't see the cornerstone, don't see the house being built up with their eyes. So we have to say, will you help me to see it? Prayerfully, dependently, waiting on God to illumine the truth, to show me what is and what is coming. Now, that does not happen. If you do not come to the Bible and seek the filling of the Scriptures and come to God and seek the filling of the Spirit, those two things are what changes our our inside eyes so that we can see what is, can see the exalted Christ and can see the coming exaltation. We take the scriptures in hand and with the Spirit pray, illumine my eyes, show me Christ, show me his exalted nature, show me what is and what is coming. Bear fruit in my life, Spirit, please. And then God does it. How long till then? I don't know. Sometimes in my experience, it's minutes. Sometimes it's weeks.
But Jesus calls us to him and says, I will give you rest. I will give you sight. I will give you life. I will fill you. Come. Christian, Jesus has been and will be exalted. He will exalt himself in your own heart, in your life, as you turn to the scriptures and as you turn to his spirit and say, lift up Jesus before me, please. Bear fruit in my life, please. And you wait before him. And he will say yes. That's his whole goal, to bear fruit in your life to make you glad in him. That's what glorifies him, to make you glad in him. He will respond. So go to him in faith, asking, Lord, exalt Christ in my eyes. By your spirit, show me Jesus in the scriptures, please. And he will respond. Let me pray. Father, when we are people who who sit before you empty-handed, asking for what we can't make, we are in a spot where we feel vulnerable and feel untied, unmoored. Will you remind your people in that spot that that's where you want us? That's what dependence looks like, that we are resting on you and not on our own selves. So remind us that that's okay. And then, Father, will you move to draw near and to answer? We need to see the exalted Christ, but we often cannot see him. So will you please, Father, by your Spirit, Show us Jesus. Open our eyes and give grace to us that we can behold him. Bear fruit in our lives as we behold him to your honor and for our great good. This is what you're about. You have done it and will do it. In this we rejoice and are glad. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.